Hey, we're going to be in Romans chapter 8. We're kind of going verse by verse in the book of Romans. We've been doing that for a while now. And we've come to this place that I think right now we might be at a place in the Bible that perhaps is most, for me personally has been the most life-changing part of God's Word. And when I was in the eighth grade, when I first came to know Jesus as my Savior, I was challenged to memorize the verses that we're looking at today. And it has such, it's had such an impact on my life for these 40 years now. So, so excited about this. So if you don't have your Bible, uh, you know, that's fine. Open, get, get a phone, get a tablet, get something. But man, you want to have your eyes on Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 37. Uh, back on Wednesday, the American Farm Bureau came out with their 38th annual Thanksgiving survey. And they said that this year, the average meal for a family of 10 with turkey stuffing, vegetables, and pumpkin pie they have a list of how much this meal has cost uh, for the last 80 years. It's kind of fun. Yeah, I was born in 1965. So when my grandmother first made my first Thanksgiving dinner, it cost her $7 to prepare the Thanksgiving meal for 10. Uh, Melanie and I, we hosted our first Thanksgiving at our house back in 1992, and that cost us $26. Uh, this year, the meal is going to cost $61, all right? And that's a whopping 4.5% less than last year, that record of $64. Now that's still 25% higher than 2019 before the pandemic. It was $49 back then. But uh, you know, one way to save money, by the way, is you cut out the carrots and the celery and the peas. Nobody <laughs> likes those anyway, right? Nobody's going to eat that, okay? You know, celery, man, it's got zero calories. It takes more calories to eat celery than you get from celery. Celery will kill you, all right? It's what it will do. So yeah, cut out the celery. But I was reading this newspaper article about this, and they said, these findings are another sign that inflation is cooling down. And I thought, really? You're going to go there? And you're going to say, we're going to save $3 on Thanksgiving dinner this year? And this is like a big win for the American, the American people? Like the economy is like really cooling down? I remember my senior year, we won a football game 7-6. to six. Uh, they missed the extra point. We didn't. Okay, basically what happened in that football game. And I remember going to the locker room after it, and the coach was like, guys, a win is a win. And I just remember we all kind of like, yeah, yeah, I guess we did win, maybe. You know, 37 to 6 would have been a lot better, right? And just when you thought Paul had said all that he could about all that Christ does for us, when we ask Jesus to be our Savior, it's like there's even more. Here's the capstone. This is the summit of the mountain. This is the crescendo of the symphony. This is the sprint to the finish. Paul, guided by the Spirit of God, is giving us his utmost. So look at chapter 8, verse 31, where the Apostle Paul says, What then shall we say in response to this? All that God has done for us. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. You know, that second song that Jeff led us in this morning, well, it was, it was just saying that exact thing. And, you know, being, talking about being raised, Christ being raised, seated in glory. So, so good. And then look at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. 
we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That is our title today. We are more than conquerors. When you see that word, when you see that phrase, I'm sorry, in English, more than conquerors, it's actually one word, a big compound word in the original language, the Greek. And uh, you've got to have this up on your screen. You kind of see the word Nike at the end. It's like hyper Nike, all right? It's kind of fun. And it's the only time it appears in your Bible. And it's a compound word that means to like over conquer or in our, in our vernacular, we'd say to super conquer, to vanquish someone beyond simple victory. It's not winning a football game seven to six, all right? It's not saving $3 on Thanksgiving, but to thoroughly and completely conquer. So I want you to do this morning. I want you to think back with me to the cross. Imagine what a crushing defeat it must have appeared to be in the eyes of all the powers of earth and heaven, the supernatural life of Jesus of Nazareth was snuffed out. He was miraculously born. And then as an adult, he took, he took power over, over disease, over, over demons, and even over death. And he spoke as no man has ever spoken before. Even people who don't know Jesus as Lord would say he's the greatest teacher the world has ever known. And clear to any reasonable observer that because of the miraculous nature of his life, he must have been exactly who he said he was, the Son of God. But people who are in bondage to sin are never reasonable or rational, exactly the opposite. There was an illegal mockery of a trial in the dead of night. Jesus was condemned to death. And not just any death, but death by crucifixion, the most torturous, brutal death humanly imaginable. And his sadistic captors were given opportunity to torture him. They beat him with their fists. They pulled out their, his beard. They, they pressed a crown of thorns into his head and they gave him lash after lash with a cat of nine tails. And then he was told to carry his cross to the hill called Golgotha, the skull. And while he was on this way, he was furiously mocked. He was ridiculed. He was spit upon. Then he was nailed to the cross. And then to add insult to injury, the religious leaders there, began to hurl mockery at Jesus as he hung there naked before the people. And it wasn't just them. It wasn't only like the good people. Then the criminals on either side of him, they began to mock him as well. Every strata of society mocking Jesus as he hung on the cross. What did he do in response? He forgave them. All right. He, he spoke and he took care of his mother who was there. And then he even saved a soul, the man who had been mocking him when his heart changed. And he said, would you remember me when you go to your kingdom? And Jesus said, today you're going to be with me in paradise. They took Jesus's lifeless body off that cross after he gave up his spirit. And to everyone watching, it appeared that he was gone. They wrapped him up tightly in a cloth. They laid him in a tomb. And then the worst insult of all, they put centurions there to guard the tomb. It's likely that some of the men who had actually beaten him earlier that day and pressed thorns into his scalp were the very men who were watching over his grave. Now, what if Jesus had been like Lazarus? Remember the story of Lazarus in John chapter 11, when Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, and he's in his grave clothes, and he kind of comes shuffling out after they've opened up the tomb. What if that would have happened? And you know, we would have said, man, that's a miracle. 
And what if he'd been inside the tomb and he got, comes back to life, his dead body comes back to life, and he starts crying out from inside the tomb, and the guards hear his voice like, whoa, what's going on? And they get in there and they grunt and they heave and they roll that stone aside and they go in there. And what if they were superstitious? And they're like, what do we do? And they said, let's take his body to the disciples. So they kind of grab him and they take him to the disciples, they find him, and then the disciples nurse him back to health. And then months later, after Jesus has been nursed back to health, after all of his wounds and all of his, all of his terrible injuries, Jesus begins appearing to the crowds and he starts his ministry over again. And he's scarred and he's crippled. You know, maybe his hands are misshapen and things like that. He could barely walk because of, you know, the ankle bones being, you know, so scarred by the nails. But he's alive. And you could say, well, you know, Jesus scored a victory over death. Seven to six, you know, you could say that. But what actually happened in history does not even resemble the picture that I have painted. Angels appeared from heaven. The centurions fainted in their presence. The stone was thrown aside. And the only thing left in the tomb were the grave clothes. The darkness was chased out and the light came in. And Jesus' body was gone. And he was tremendously transformed into something that he had never been before. And he began appearing to people supernaturally as if out of thin air. He was a totally new creation, an entirely new kind of human being. And he appeared in a room in Jerusalem with the doors locked. He disappeared from a room in Emmaus right before the eyes of some people who were sitting there having Bible study with him. And when the time came, he told his followers he was leaving. He just rose up into the air. Kind of like, you know, when you're at Disneyland and your kids have a balloon and they let it go, they just, you kind of sit there and just watch the balloon leave, you know? And they just sat there and just watched him. And then angels were standing there saying, why do you keep looking up into heaven? You know, Jesus is gone. That's where he's going. And Jesus did not just simply conquer death, the devil, and the grave. He super conquered death, the devil, and the grave. Look at this, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. The sun is the radiance of the brilliance, glory of our awesome God. And when he had accomplished purification from sins and established our freedom from guilt by offering himself on the cross, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This means so much to your life and mine in the present. Why? Our lives are filled to the brim with heartache, confusion, frustration, and pain. Here's what you need to see. In life, yes, those things are going to come our way. But we don't just squeak out a win at the end. We don't just barely get by. It's not seven to six. It's not 4%, all right? You are identified with Jesus, all right? He is the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. You are more than a conqueror because your big brother is so much more than a conqueror, all right? 1 Corinthians 15, look at this. When this perishable puts on the imperishable and that which was capable of dying puts on freedom from death, then shall be fulfilled the scripture. Death is utterly vanquished, swallowed in victory. Thanks be to God who makes us conquerors through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see what it means to identify with Jesus is that when you look at the resurrection and you look at his ascension, and you look at what's called his glorification. Like, that's me. 
That's waiting for me. That's my destiny. That's going to be my experience. And it will be an overwhelming victory. If you know Jesus as your Savior, you are more than a conqueror, just like Jesus is. Hebrews chapter 2, we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor in order to bring many children to share His glory. He is the one who leads them to salvation. He purifies us from our sins. And He and those He has made pure, they all have the same Father. And so why would it be different for us than it has been for Him? And so yeah, life in the present, it's a strange intermixture of good and bad. You know, there are a lot of us who are going to go home and we're going to have Thanksgiving this year and there's going to be lots of family around the table and it's going to be wonderful. It's going to be great. And there are a lot of us who are going to look at the table and say, I wish this person were still here. And on the one hand, we're so happy that somebody is. And on the other hand, we're sad that somebody isn't. Maybe it's a death. Maybe it's a divorce. Maybe it's an abandonment. Don't really know. And that's just the way life is. It's just an intermixture of good and bad. But the glory of knowing Christ as your Savior is you know that everything in your life has purpose. Look at verse 28. All things work together for good for those who love him who are called according to his purpose. Sometimes life seems random. It seems meaningless. It seems cruel. And it's none of the above. God has a purpose for everything that happens. Everything is moving toward his desired end. Ecclesiastes 3.1 says, there is a time for every purpose under heaven. You see, God called this world into being. He peopled this world with a race of men and he permitted them to fall. But then what did he do in response? He sent his very son, his beloved son, into this sin-wrecked world. Then at the cross and at the resurrection, he achieved his ultimate purpose. John chapter 17, right before he died, Jesus was deep in prayer. His disciples overheard him and they wrote down his prayer. And this is part of what he prayed. Father, I desire that they whom you have entrusted to me as your gift to me may be with me where I am so that they may see my glory, which you have given me. Look at this now. For you loved me before the foundation of the world that the love which you have bestowed upon me may be in their hearts. Imagine, imagine a world where everyone loves the way that God loves. I can't. I can't do it. It would be a world without wars, a world without terrorists, a world without crime, protests, a world without government. You know, we wouldn't need government, which means we'd have to pay taxes. Wouldn't that be wonderful? A world without divorce, a world without grief, a world without pain. But we cannot love this way. Why? We're so flawed, so feeble, sickened by sin and iniquity, loving unconditionally, without reservation, boldly. It's impossible for us. And for a world like that to exist, it sounds almost like science fiction. Human beings would have to be changed fantastically, beyond all recognition. And Paul is telling us here, there is a process 
that God initiated at the cross that is this catalyst for this kind of a transformation. And the way chapter 8 ends is awesome. Because look what we have here. First of all, there are five declarations, five things that God has done to bring around massive change in people. We talked about those last week. Then there are five defenses. These are the answers that are given to any objection to the love and security that God gives his children. And then there are five defeated foes, which we're going to look at next week. Five things that try to oppose us, but they fail because we conquer so overwhelmingly in Jesus. What are those five declarations? Number, you know, Paul boldly declares there are five unassailable truths. And like I said, we visited this last week, but I want you to see how they fit together. Look at verse 29. Those whom God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. Why? So that we could love the way that Jesus loves someday. That he might be the firstborn among many brothers and those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. These are the five steps that God takes stretching from eternity to eternity. It's, it's, it's all timeless, okay? We can't understand how God does time, but it's all done to recreate you and me. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, new things have come. It's called the golden chain of the gospel. These five certainties are like five links in a chain. It's all five or it's none. You can't be foreknown and not be predestined. You can't be predestined and not be called. You can't be called and not be glorified. Things like that. And so this is the central purpose of all of history. And look back at verse 19. What's happening for you and me is liberating all of creation from bondage to decay. And so Paul can't contain himself as he's pondering this. And he ends Romans 8 with this powerful stream of thought. And you can search every book in every library written in human history. And there's nothing quite like this anywhere. Five defenses. These are five defiant, unanswerable questions that Paul asks. Number one, if God is for us, who can be against us? Amen. Wow. Yeah, I read a great story a few years ago. A single mom moved from California to Missouri with her three children. And her children were mixed race. And her 13-year-old son uh, went to school and he kind of got crossways with a group of guys at school who were racist. You know, just no other way to say it. And because of their prejudice, he got beat up at school because of the color of his skin. And he came home one day. He came home weeping. He didn't understand it. Mom called the school. The school wasn't very helpful. She really didn't know what to do. The kids were picking on her son day after day. Finally, she was so exasperated, she called the elders in her church back in California. And she just said, would you just pray for the situation? So the elders of that church, they, they stopped and they prayed. You know, they asked that God would defend this little boy. Two weeks later, the elder board of this church got a letter from, this, from Missouri. And she told them the story of how one night, the biggest kid in the school appeared at her door. And he told this single mom, he said, I'm a Christian and I know that you're Christians. He said, I want you to know, I've gone to every kid in the school who beat up on your son. And I told them if they ever did anything like that ever again, that they're going to answer to me. I guess he missed that day in Sunday school about turning the other cheek. I don't know, <laughs> all right? But it's so cool. Now, I don't know this big boy's name, but let's call him Bubba, okay? I can imagine that little boy going back to school from California, walking around in Bubba's shadow, right? And all those kids who had persecuted him and tormented him, 
looking at the two of them together, and that little boy is thinking to himself, if Bubba is for me, who can be against me, right? That's what he's thinking. And look at this, Psalm 27.1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Why should I be afraid? The Lord is my fortress, protecting me from danger. Though a mighty army, army surrounds me, my heart will not be afraid. If God is for us, who could be for, against us? You say, well, is God for me? Yes, if you know Jesus as your Savior, God has worked stupendously in your heart to bring you to that place. Yes, He is for you. And the second one is this, He who did not spare His Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also give us all things? There was nothing God would not give to rescue you from the clutches of death and hell. God did not hold back His fury against sin, he did not mitigate his wrath against our rebellion in any way, but we could not withstand God's justice on our sin and our rebellion. And so his own son endured the punishment that we deserved on the cross. Nahum chapter one, the prophet said, the Lord does not easily become angry, but he is powerful and he never lets the guilty go unpunished. And when he is angry, who can survive? Who can survive his terrible fury? He pours out his flaming anger and rocks crumble to dust before him. We could not have withstood God's wrath on our rebellion and sin, but his precious son could, and he went there for us to that cross. God has already given us his best, his greatest, his dearest, his most precious possession. And he did so, think about that, while we were sinners. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Hmm. God's eternal purpose has already cost him so much. What would he possibly withhold from you now? And sometimes life is so hard, but we have to believe in our deep heart. God's not withholding anything from me. There's nothing he's holding back because of something I've done wrong or some mistake that I've made. And look at the third question. Who will bring any charge against those who God has chosen? Have you ever been plagued by guilt, by some sin from your past? It's a ploy of the enemy to discourage you and defeat you. The devil is the accuser of the brethren, the Bible says. Day and night, he's hurling accusation and condemnation at you and me. Causing, trying to cause you to, to doubt God's love, to, to default on your commitment to Jesus. Revelation chapter 12, uh, the, John said this, the sal- now has come the salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before God day and night has been hurled down and they triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. Notice what Paul says when he asks that question. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? And he says, it is God who justifies. Notice that. We cannot listen to these voices that accuse us, the thoughts that put us down, that discourage us, that deter us. You see, you and I, we don't get to control what comes through the airspace of our minds, but we do get to control what comes in for a landing, okay? We get to control that. And we have to refuse the accuse, all right? Who can accuse us when it is God that justifies? Ephesians 6.16 says, Above all, be sure you take faith as your shield 
so you can quench every burning missile that the enemy hurls at you. You know, we're going to hear a lot about Israel's iron dome. Hezbollah and Hamas, they launch missiles at Israel, hundreds, you know, thousands at a time. And man, these missiles are going off and, and sometimes lasers now, it's pretty awesome to see. And they're, you know, they're knocking these missiles out of the ground. We need to have an iron dome over our minds so that when these fiery missiles the, or the fiery darts, some versions say, these thoughts that come into our minds that accuse us and condemn us, we say, no, knocking that out. It's not there because God has justified me. He has declared me innocent. Jesus paid for all my sins. So there's no charge going to be brought against me. And how do we conquer? By the word of our testimony. We freely admit, yes, I deserve, I deserve to be accused. I deserve to be contemned, condemned. But Christ has paid for all my sins. He has forgiven all my sins on the cross. And here's the fourth question. Who then is the one who condemns? Who can condemn? And this should kind of, the words here should kind of summon up a picture in your mind of a court of law. Who can bring a charge of guilty against Christians? And he says, he answers the question here. No one, no one. Christ Jesus who died, he could, all right? He's the only one who has the right or has the place to give us the charge of guilty. And yet he says, but Jesus died for us. He took our place. He took the sentence for us. And God has declared you innocent of all charges. Your sins are removed forever. Acts chapter three, the very first sermon preached with this gospel, this message of salvation by free grace. Peter said this, God has fulfilled what he foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer. So repent, return to God that your sins may be minimized, mitigated? No, erased, erased. Doesn't stop there. There's more. It's kind of like an infomercial, you know? More than that, Paul says, who was raised to life and is at the right hand of God. It's not just that he's forgiven us and erased those sins, but he's, he's interceding for us. Man, the glory of Christianity is this. Muhammad is dead. Buddha is dead, all right? All the swamis of Hinduism, they are dead. L. Ron Hubbard from Scientology is very, very dead, okay? Very dead. We have a living Savior. He is alive and well. We have a grounding in the history of Jesus. He came, undeniable, Christmas. He died, and then he rose again at Easter. Not only is he alive, he is seated at the right hand of God, acting as our defense advocate. And when we come to Jesus, we don't just come to a law, a code, or a creed. We come to a person, someone we undeniably know exists, who has a relationship with us, who loves us, and who intercedes for us in the heavenly places in eternal glory. There's a great, great author named A.W. Tozer. And I want to read a quote here. It's a little long, but it is so good. It's, gonna, it's kind of like, you know, Thanksgiving meal. It's rich, okay? It's so, so good. Listen to this. The teaching of the New Testament is that now at this very moment, 
There is a man in heaven in the presence of God for us. And he is as certainly a man as was Adam or Moses or Paul. He is a man glorified, but his glorification did not dehumanize him. Today, he is a real man, a visible and audible man whom any other man would recognize instantly as one of us. But more than this, he is the heir of all things, Lord of all lords, head of the church, firstborn of the new creation, the way to God, the hope of Israel, and the high priest of every true worshiper. He holds the keys of death and hell, and he stands as an advocate for everyone who believes on him in truth. And I want you to see the last part of this quote. It's up on the screen. Salvation comes by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, the whole living victorious Lord who as God and man fought our fight and won it, accepted our debt as his own and paid it, took our sins and died under them and rose again to set us free. This is the true Christ. Nothing less will do. You can say amen if you want to. That is awesome. That is so, so good. And I just want to ask you this morning, is this the Jesus that you are trusting for your salvation? Not just a code, not just trying to live up to the ideal life of Jesus, trying to be a better man, better woman, just trying to have a you know, have it good with the man upstairs. No, no. You lay your life at the feet of this risen Lord Jesus. You say, my life is yours. Forgive me of my sins. Purify me. Take me to glory. I want to be with you, Jesus, and I will do anything you ask of me. That's what it means to know Jesus as your Savior. And the last one is this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? It's remarkable, this statement, really, when you think about it, because if you've been here with us for a while, the first seven chapters of Romans have been telling us you're radically separated from God. You know, we were under the curse of sin. We were living as slaves to sin, in bondage to futility and entropy and decay. But God's grace, God's incredible grace has been applied to our desperate condition. Our sins are forgiven, Paul says, because of what Jesus has done. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we are filled with the Spirit. We did nothing, nothing to deserve the love of Christ. So how could we do anything to lose it? He chose to make us the objects of his love, his redemption, and his glory purely by his free grace. Revelation 1.5 says this, Grace and peace to you from Jesus Christ, the firstborn among the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, the one who loves us and has set us free from our sins at the cost of his own blood. If God's love for you is so costly, so comprehensive, so overwhelmingly transformative, you can be certain of one thing. In any peril life may bring, death, divorce, abandonment, no matter what it might be, nothing can come between you and the Savior who loves you this much. No suffering, no hardship, no pain, no tragedy is ever a signal that you are separated from God's love. 
If Christ is your Savior, being separated from God's love is unthinkable. Why? Because if you know Jesus as your Savior, you are identified with Christ. When God allowed his son to go to the cross and endure the agonies of the cross, was there ever even a nanosecond that God did not love his dear son? No. It's unthinkable that God would ever cease to love his son. Now, he did say, why have you forsaken me? But that's not the same as why have you stopped loving me? You have a living Savior seated at the right hand of God in indescribable power and glory. He has chosen you. He treasures you. He loves you. And he is bringing you home. We're bringing our kids home this week. We're working. You know, Melanie's been moving heaven and earth to bring all the kids home. You know, plane tickets and, you know, uh, going to pick people up at the airport and doing all kinds of arrangements and things like that. God's doing the very same thing. He's moving heaven and earth to have you home. And there will be a Thanksgiving in heaven. It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it's going to be great. And when, they, when you arrive there, <clears throat> you will never be the same. Because when you are with him, it will be because you are like him. That's what it means to be glorified. Those whom he has justified, declared innocent, he has glorified. And so I just want us to dwell on this before we go today. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. The Apostle Paul has been talking to the Corinthian church about Man, we need to be a generous people. We need to be a sacrificial people. We need to be a giving people. And he gives the the rationale for living a life like that. He says, says, thanks be to God for his gift, the gift beyond anything words can describe. Hmm. You see, when you have such a savior, it, it completely and radically transforms the way you look at everything. And so, yes, This week is a week of Thanksgiving. This is a week of Thanksgiving. Lots of football, lots of great food, lots of family. Absolutely. Those things are so important. But ladies and gentlemen, this week, can I just ask you to do me a big favor? Sometime this week, Wednesday or Thursday, read Romans chapter 8 and say, God, would you fill my heart to the fullest with gratitude for all that you've done for me, for all that you've done. You might be here this morning and say, I'm not a Christian. I don't read my Bible. That's be a great place to start. Read Romans chapter eight and just ask God to show you all that he's done for you. It is amazing to comprehend. Ask God to show him in his word how much he loves you and what he will do for you in Jesus. Let's bow our heads this morning, if we could. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. I just wanna ask you to quiet your heart this morning. And just kind of, I know there's been a lot there, but maybe there's been one or two things that really jumped off the page at you. If God is for me, who can be against me? Who could ever separate me from the love of Christ? I want to ask you just to think about that for just a moment. Think about some of those questions. Think about what it means to be justified in God's sight, declared innocent of all charges. Think about what it means to be glorified to be radically transformed, to be changed physically, spiritually, in every way, to be more like Jesus, to be luminous and brilliant and beautiful. Hmm. So let's just quiet our heart this morning and just think about these things. 
for a couple of moments. Then I want to pray for us. If you would, just go before the Lord and just thank Him. Express your gratitude to God for this gift that words cannot describe. Take a moment to be thankful this morning. Take a moment to praise the Lord. And Lord, it's, it's just impossible for words to capture all that's here. And yet, Father, we know that by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, that you are able to reveal to us more than we would have ever known. And I just pray, Father, for anyone who's here this morning who's never known what it means to know so great a salvation. I just pray, Jesus, that this might be the time that they might see what it means to know you as Savior and Lord. And Father, if there might be somebody here today who's going through an especially difficult time of life, I pray, Father, today that you would lift their head, that they would know that you still love them so dearly. Lord, that they would, they, they would know that they know. Lord, that you have a purpose for everything. And Father, you are calling them home into unspeakable, unimaginable glory. And that that day will come. That day will come. So Lord, I just ask that today. We want you to be glorified in this place today, Jesus. So we ask this for your name.